So we've been uh, preaching a series working our way through the book of James. Uh, this is where we're up to at this point in time. We're up to chapter 4, 11 to 17, which you've just had read. So we're going to come before the Lord, ask that the things that, uh, that we have just heard read uh, might take effect on us, um, that his spirit might work within us uh, to change us, to make us more like Jesus. Heavenly Father, we recognise that you are Lord of everything. Everything that exists, exists because you made it. It was made by Jesus, through Jesus and for Jesus. Lord, we confess at times that we live as though we are in control of so many things or that we are the ultimate authority on things. But we recognise that we aren't the ultimate authority of anything. And so, Lord, as we come before your word, may we do so with humble hearts. And we recognise that your word is, as we say, it is your word to us. May we hear it as the very word of God. And may you refrain me from saying anything that's outside of what you have declared to be true. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes you can have the biggest and best plans, everything planned out, all of the details, all of the steps of how you're going to figure that out, and it can come to nothing just like that. Now, our eldest Miller, she was born November 2014. And it didn't take us long as parents to start having conversations about which school are we going to send Miller to? It was actually the very next year, 2015, we'd start to have a conversation of which primary school Miller would go to, which high school Miller would go to. We were living in Victoria at the time. When Sarah would return to work and, and what capacity she would return to work. This is early 2015 we're having this discussion about where all these things would take place. The church that we were involved with in Victoria was part of the Baptist Union, very loosely part of the Baptist Union. It wasn't a great fit for us. And somewhere along the line, I came across an ad for Hope Reformed Baptist Church down in Brisbane. I thought, wonder what they belong to. They, they, they might fit a little bit better with the church that I was involved in. And through that, I found out about FECA, the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches of Australia, which is the network of churches that Eastgate belongs to. And then through that down the track, I came across this ad for this place called Eastgate Bible Church. And it threw me completely off guard because we'd planned to stay in Mafra for ages. Yet there was something compelling as I came across this ad and sheepishly came down to my wife and says, I've just seen this job ad for something in Toowoomba. Just in case, maybe we should pray about it. And then... As time went along, I had this very deep conviction that if I believe that God is truly in control of all things, putting in an application is not something I should be scared of. It's like, okay. So I went through the whole application process. Long story short, we ended up moving up here in February 2016. All of those plans about where Miller might go to primary school, let alone high school, 
When Sarah returned to work in the place in which she was, straight out the window, gone, just like that. I think it's safe to say that pretty much every single thing in life, at best, is a maybe. Even the most simplest of things is a maybe. Because there are factors that are totally outside of your control. Because we are not the Lord of all. Sure, we're able to make plans, but there are so many factors that are outside of our control that we can do nothing about. As a Christian, there's probably only a few things we can know for certain. We can know for certain anything that God has declared to be true in his word. We can have a certainty about our salvation if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus. We can have a certainty about our future, about what Jesus is going to do, how we're going to go to be with him, either when we die or when Jesus returns. But all the other little details of our life, we've got no control over these. Last week, as we looked at the first 10 verses of chapter 4, James was addressing some of the quarrels and fighting that was taking place amongst the people that he was writing to. He says, doesn't that just come from your passions from within you? This selfish ambition and bitter envy and you both have desires that you want and you've got two opposing desires that butt heads and as a result you fight and you have all sorts of quarrels about it. James even goes so far to apply some of the language of the Old Testament prophets and says, you adulterers. You love and you trust God in these areas, but in these other areas you say, God, you're not enough. I want what the world's got to offer. They were proud and they were self-centered. They had among them, some of them who were of the attitude that nobody is more important and nobody is more deserving. I will get what I want at whatever cost. And James reminded them, that is pride. God opposes and even says in Proverbs 3, he hates pride, but gives grace to the humble. So in verse 10 he said, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He told them to submit themselves to God, to draw near to God and God will draw near to him, to resist the devil who's trying to lead them away from drawing near to God. And today, he addresses two areas in which we are also prone to showing pride and arrogance. In particular, our speech and our plans. But given that he is Lord of all, he is the Lord of your speech. He is the Lord of your plans. His sovereignty is a good and a comforting thing. How often do you hear in Christian circles, let's go back to the early church? There's kind of like this romantic idea of let's go back and be like the early church. And when they say that, they've got this nice idea of the part of Acts when it talks about how they had all things in common and how somebody had a need, they would gladly sell something to be able to meet somebody else's need. But the New Testament I read, most of the early churches had their fair share of problems. I can't imagine too many people think, 
man, if the church in Corinth was here in Toowoomba, that's where I'd want to go. The people to whom James is writing don't sound that particularly pleasant either. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. He's addressing Christians, brothers. Don't speak evil of one another. This is what is happening in the life of the Christians that he's writing to. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. He's saying, Christians, stop speaking evil against one another. Now, if you've got an NIV, you might have it translated as do not slander, which the term that's behind this includes slander, but it literally means to speak against somebody. It effectively means any harmful speech to either bring a person down or to with the intent of damaging their reputation. So that could include slander, which is usually people attributing false things about someone in order to bring them down, or even sometimes exaggerating or using the truth about somebody to bring them down. Or it could take place in the context of gossip, true or untrue. So whether it's true, false, to a person's face or or said to somebody else, it says, do not say anything against another Christian with the intent of either bringing them down or damaging their reputation. What we are regularly commanded to do in the scriptures is that we are to have speech which edifies. We are to have speech which builds one another up. Now last week we spoke a lot about pride and selfish ambition and this is connected here once again. Because often a person's motive for wanting to speak against someone, to bring them down or to damage their reputation is because the worse that other people look, the better I look. To speak against another brother or to judge them, James says, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. What does he mean by that? Now, anyone who's been through the primary school system has probably at some point been pulled pulled aside by their teacher and given these words. How would you like that if somebody did that to you after something that you had done to somebody else? If you were the recipient, how would you feel? Now here James is telling these these Christians, do not speak against other Christians. Now hands up those who would say that when somebody has slandered them or spread gossip about them, that you think, wow, that is genuine Christian love. I just want more of it. That's That's my love language. There you go, Gary Chapman, you left one out of your book. The love language of slander. No, not really. Nobody likes it. Back in chapter 2, verse 8, James referred back to the royal law, the idea of loving your neighbour as yourself. And a person who speaks against another Christian speaks against the law that calls us to love our neighbour in the way in which we would like 
to be loved ourselves. But not only does it speak against the law, it judges the law. When we choose to do something in opposition to which what God has commanded, we judge it and say, that one doesn't apply to me. I am an authority above God's word itself. I will say which ones apply to me, which ones don't. It is subject to my rule and authority. In chapter 2, verse 10, James says, if you break one of the laws, you're guilty of all of them. But disobeying God's word is not just a matter of disobedience with a, a grade scale of little disobedience to big disobedience. Everything in God's word is a reflection of his character, of his being, of his will, and not of his purposes. And therefore, to resist, to oppose, or to put yourself outside of it is to resist or oppose and take issue about something about God himself. His character, his will, his purposes. To oppose or to despise any aspect of what God has given for our good is to oppose or to despise something about God. That brings a certain weight to it, doesn't it? To think that it's just not just doing the wrong thing, but actually expressing a contempt for something about God and his character. Particularly if we're prone to enjoying a little bit of gossip. We take a bit of delight in speaking about others, their faults, whether they're true, exaggerated or false. It concerns me when you come across ministries that seem to spend more time criticising other people than they do at actually speaking things that are beneficial. But does this mean that we never judge? We should never judge anybody. Now, this is where someone will say, oh, look at this, Matthew 7, 1, Jesus has said it. Can't get any greater authority than that. Jesus says, judge not that you may not be judged. Case settled, closed, Jesus said it, done. Jesus said more than that. You can take small sentences or snippets out of the Bible and make it mean whatever you like. Did you know as you can find the phrase, there is no God, 15 times in the Bible? Sure, it's in the context of the fool says in his heart, there is no God or something like that, or there is no God but thee. But if you want to take it out of context, you can say, the Bible says on 15 occasions, there is no God. Well, my favourite, did you know Jesus owns a Honda? He, you know, he wished he had a HSV or something like that. He was a bit ashamed about it. Because in John twelve forty nine it says, For I do not speak of my own accord. There you go. There's one for the dad jokes. But the rest of what Jesus actually said in Matthew 7 was this. Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to use. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? The central point of what Jesus was saying is, you guys are so quick to judge other people, 
that you actually forget to judge yourself. You hear something in God's word and you think, man, that person, they need to hear about that. And so slow to say, does that actually reflect me? Is there something I need to do? It's clear that Jesus doesn't mean that there's never a place to make judgments about certain things. Just further down in that very same chapter, he says, Beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is saying, Make a judgment by what you see by the outcome of their life about their nature. Think about the passages that speak about elders and deacons in the church. It lists about a list of qualifications. You need to make judgments. Are these things true of these people that we're thinking about appointing to these roles? So we do make judgments about certain things. And we're called to make judgments about certain things. But there are also times that we are prone to make some very unwise judgments. Judgments where we think or we speak unjustly against another person. How quick can we be sometimes to judge another person's faith by our interpretation of particular external appearances? To use some of the more common ones, I've known people who've made some very harsh judgments about another Christian because, oh, that Christian's got tattoos. And they, they make statements about that person. Or about their clothing. If they were really a Christian, they wouldn't be wearing that. Maybe they're behavioural things. Oh, that person claims to be a Christian, but I'm pretty sure I saw him smoking the other day. Pretty sure I saw him have a, have a beer the other day. Pretty sure that guy ended a raffle to win a car. Pretty sure I saw that person dancing. That's for the old school Baptist, that one. That's, that's the one time I like to cling on to my Baptist heritage. Not because I think that God's opposed to dancing, but I just don't like dancing, so I'm comfortable with that. But let me give you a newsflash. You cannot see a person's heart. That person with, with tattoos, that person wearing particular clothes, who was smoking, drinking, raffle, dance, whatever it is, may have a more sincere relationship with Jesus than you do. To presume based on those minor external things, something about their internal disposition before God, you are not the judge of mankind. There is one lawgiver and judge, James says. Guess what? It's not you. It's the one who is able to save and to destroy. He said, but who are you to judge your neighbour? Who are you to make bold declarations about somebody's position before God? And when we make such judgments about people... We take the blasphemous position of saying, God, get off the throne. This one's my call. I'm going to act to decide where that person is rather than leave that to you. Now, if you remember back in chapter 3, James says, all of us sin in many ways. 
all of us do. Yet all of us naturally are more inclined to be really good at judging others and how they apply the scriptures than we are at looking at ourselves. You know, the experience you're reading a book, you're hearing a sermon, maybe even this sermon, and you're thinking, oh, if only that person was here this morning, they need to hear this. They're gossiping all the time. Whenever you're reading the scriptures, hearing a sermon, reading a book, you should say, what does this say about me? Does this reflect me? Is this calling me to change? Because, little insight, you're the only person that you can actually effectively change. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And when we bring ourselves before the Lord, before the one who is perfect in holiness and righteousness, we're not going to defend ourselves and say, wow, I'm doing heaps better than that person. We will see our wretchedness. We will give thanks for his grace and his mercy. Because it's only pride, lifting ourselves up, that stirs a desire to want to bring other people down. And God hates pride. It is pride that wants us to take the position of God to make judgments about other people, to make judgments about which of his commands we should be interested in and not interested in. It is pride to quote the famous Invictus poem to say, I am master of my fate, captain of my soul. It is pride that says, I'm the ultimate authority in my life, I'm the ruler, I call all of the shots and all of its activities. He is the Lord of your plans. It wasn't just their words that they presumed the place of God. It seems there were a number of them who thought that they could make whatever plans they wanted, that they had the power and authority to declare what they'll do and they'll transpire exactly as they planned. And James takes issue with them saying, come now you, I'll put it in brackets, plural, because we don't have a plural for you in English, so come now use to make it Australian. Incidentally, that's the one thing I like about the Jehovah's Witness Bible is that when you is in plural, it puts it all in capital letters so you know when it's in plural. Anyway, come now you, yous, who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make profit. So the fact that it's plural says this was an attitude amongst a number of people to whom James is writing. Now there's nothing wrong with any of those events. There's nothing wrong with travel. There's nothing wrong with doing business. There's nothing wrong with making a profit. In fact, that's probably a good aspect of business if it's actually profitable. The issue was the pride and arrogance that came with it. To declare, we will do this. Nothing will stand in our way. No consideration for God whatsoever. This is what I'm doing. And it will be a success because I'm the man and I've done this before. But like what we've seen in some of the earlier chapters, James comes back with a quite a probing question for them. 
Verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's an important question. What is your life? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous British preacher, says, a Christian who doesn't ask himself that question every day is a fool. To think about, what is my life? Where did my life come from? What is my life for? Who am I? As James asked that question, he's like, get some proper perspective. Everything you have, your life comes from God. The very breath that you just breathed to sustain your life, he gave to you. You need him in order to live every single second of your day. Yet these people were claiming five things. I'm the master that I can leave tomorrow, nothing's standing in my way. I'm going to go and make it to a particular town. We'll stay there for 12 months. We'll do trade. It will be successful. Have a guess how many of those five things you actually have authority to to make them actually eventuate? None. That's why James says, you don't even know what you've got tomorrow. And here you think you've got a big plan for tomorrow, beyond that for the next year, and it's going to be successful. Yet in every single one of those things, the claim of these people is, we will. The only person who can say, I will, and it's guaranteed, is God. Now, I'm sure when James asked the question, what is your life? There was probably some of those proud people in that church who had some quite self-important statements about their life. My life is, I do this for a job and I'm really good at it. I make a lot of money. I can't imagine they were overly chuffed with what James said about their life. After they thought of themselves being self-made and important, he says, you are a mist that appears and disappears. Now, I grew up in Barrel in New South Wales. It's cold in winter. And when I used to walk down to catch the bus, there were two things I used to like doing. One, the puddles would often freeze over, so you'd smash the ice on top of the puddles. And the second thing is that sometimes we'd have those lollies that are now politically correct called fads, but they were called fags in my day. They were like lolly cigarettes. But on a cold morning, we would sit there at the bus stop with these fags, and we'd, and because it was cold, you'd blow out your breath, and, it, and, and you see the vapour... No, no one stopped and said, what are you little kids doing? And I don't know why I thought it was such a funny thing to do, but we did. But I do remember one thing. That vapour didn't hang around for real long. It's not like you did it puff once and then the next five minutes the cars are going, wow, that guy's having a smoke. No, it was there for a moment and gone so quickly. And James says, that is your life. If you want something put in perspective about you thinking you're in control of all things, you are a mist that appears and disappears. Their attitude was presumptuous and arrogant in so many ways. They presumed that the length of their life was within their hands. 
that they could make whatever plans they wanted and they'd make them actually come to fruition. And not only would they bring them to fruition, but they would be successful. You've got no control over any of those three. We can't decide how long we're going to live. We don't just think, oh, I'm young. Average life is, what, I don't know what the average life is in Australia. I didn't look it up, I should have Googled it. But some people will think, oh, I'm young, I'm healthy, everything's going well, I've got all these years ahead of me. When I was 19, I was on my way to Campbelltown TAFE, classy venue that it was, driving along to TAFE as I did every day, Monday to Friday, merging onto the Hume Highway. Now, this story now comes from recollection from others because I have no recollection of the event. I was merging onto the Hume Highway at 100 k's an hour. There was a truck that was in the overtaking line, for some reason going 15 k's an hour, who also tried to merge into the same lane that I was trying to merge into. End result, my mum's car, how good was it? My car was getting something repaired. I had my mum's car <laughs> smashed straight into the back of the truck. Now, because of the nature of a truck and the, the tray on the back of it, it didn't hit the front of the car. It sure ripped the bonnet up a little bit like, like an alfoil. The first thing it hit were the uprights of the windscreens, folding the roof down. There's not much in terms of um, skid on the road, so I wouldn't have slowed down much from that 100 or whatever I was travelling at. He was apparently going at 15, straight under the, under the tray, headbutt the back of the truck, hence why I have... No memory of it, and I think if 26 years have passed and I still don't remember that morning, I don't think it's coming back, that one. I've got long legs. I had that seat back as far as it could possibly go. I have sat in that car after it was in that state, that roof, that far from my nose. If I had the seat where my mum would have had it, I wouldn't have a head. I wouldn't have a life. I hadn't trusted Jesus at that point by the age 19. I would have presumed I had millions of years ahead of me that could have been gone at age 19. What about our plans? So if we don't decide how long we're going to live, what about our plans? Well, once everything had transpired, people had voted and they strangely said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put up with Steve being the pastor of this church. Before we came up, I flew up one one, I don't know if it was a weekend or some time to, to look at some houses. On the way to the airport, a B-double truck came over into our lane. Oh, into my lane. I was travelling alone. Um, damaged the car, didn't wreck the car, didn't wreck me, but had it done more, all those plans of coming up would have come to nothing. I don't need to provide a list of examples about success that we thought was going to happen that wasn't because... Every single one of us could give us pages upon pages, things that we thought we were going to do successfully that didn't work out. It's the only way you can have control over all of these factors. You need to be all-powerful, and you are not. Yet God says of himself, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He doesn't have to say, God willing or as long as nothing works against me, because he has all power and authority. Whatever he pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all of the deeps. But you and I, 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. 
Therefore, we are called to glorify God. So rather than saying, I will do this, I'm the captain of my fate, I decide everything that happens, James says, this is what you should do. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Now, there's two aspects to that. All of it focusing around the emphasis on if the Lord wills. Recognising he alone is sovereign. The first thing is this. Only God has an entirely free will. Now, I know some of you are going to butt up and say, no, no, I've got free will. To the person who insists that they have free will, I'm going to ask you after the service to demonstrate your free will to run 300 kilometres an hour. There might be some things in which we do have free will to do things, but we do not have an entirely free will. We are subject to so many things that are outside of our control. Secondly, as a Christian, we should never make plans that are outside of the will of God. What God has made known to us, we shouldn't start thinking, I know he said this, but this is what I want to do. This is the plan I'm going to make. But James says in verse 16, you boast, you brag and say you can do everything. And he says, you know what, that boasting, that is evil. Evil because it leaves God out of the picture and evil because it sets yourself up as God. It's again you saying, God, get off the throne, I call the shots, I'm going to do whatever I want, I'm the ultimate master. Now because this passage says, addresses those people who were saying a certain thing. And now in verse 15 he says, you ought to say, some will say, you must verbalise this expression. If the Lord wills, if you don't say it, you're doing the wrong thing. Now I'm going to push back on that just a little bit, but I'll also say why it's good to do it as well. The reason why I'm going to push back on it is you can say If the Lord wills, yet have a heart that deep down is not actually thinking that way at all. Or you can not say it, not verbalise it, but have a heart that realises that he is sovereign and all of our plans are subject to his. Let me give you a biblical example of Paul. Sometimes he speaks about the specifics of his plans and he says, if God wills. Sometimes he speaks as though this is what I'm going to do, but I'm sure his attitude hasn't changed between the two. Speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 18.21, he says, but taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he said, sail from Ephesus. Yet to the Romans, in chapter 15, he says, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So one he says, if God wills, the other he says, this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to do this, this, and then I'm going to come back to you via Spain. I'm sure on both occasions, Paul recognised his plans were subject to God's will. One time he verbalised it, one time he didn't. So given that we've been speaking about judging someone, we want to be careful not to make judgments because that person hasn't used a particular phrase in their sentence that they are not trusting God with their plans. 
That being said, that doesn't mean you, that it doesn't matter whether you say it or not. Yes, the heart is the priority that you have the right heart attitude before God. But there's some strong links between our heart and what we speak. What we think in our heart, we should speak with our mouths. And by speaking and declaring it out loud, it actually displays and proclaims the sovereignty of God to those who are around us. That we recognise as we're conversing with others that my plans are not my own. My life is not my own. I'm subject to one who is greater and I want to be in accordance to his will. And just when it seemed like it was all in a good flow, verse 17 at first appears to come out of nowhere. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Something, what's that got to do with what he was talking about? And it doesn't seem to fit with the next bit that comes after. But the fact that it begins with so or therefore means that James is now making a concluding statement in light of what he's just been saying. He says, so now that you know how you should speak against your brothers and sisters, now that you know how you should make your plan subject to the will of God, now that you know it, if you don't live in accordance to what you know, that is a sin. James is a very practical kind of guy. He's like, I don't want you guys just to have the great good theology about these things. Now that you know it, do it. Because if you don't do it, then it's a sin and what you think that you know is only theoretical knowledge. God's sovereignty, it's a good thing. I don't know why, but for some reason many people are uncomfortable with the fact that God is sovereign over all things. They're uncomfortable that he alone is ruler over all. That he does, according to Psalm 135, everything he pleases, he does. According to his good character, according to his good will, his good plans in life to, to unite all things under Christ. But when someone has concerns about this, my first question is always this. Who do you wish was in control of all aspects of your life? Do you wish you were? Because, man, I don't know the mess that I've made of it. Or, or do you prefer the idea of, I just want to leave everything to chance. I'll just let chance and circumstances control and dominate every aspect of my life. Maybe disease or sickness. Or Satan. Really? Are they, are they preferable options? Imagine if you or someone you knew died at an early age. And you even hear Christians Use this phrase, this person's life was taken from them too early, too soon. Know what that proclaims? That proclaims sickness or an incident has ultimate authority over this person's life and that person should have had so much more. And it's common, unfortunately, when people think that way, because they, in their mind, think that person should have had a much longer life, they get angry with God. God, why did you let that happen? 
Why couldn't they live longer? Why didn't you act? Now, surely nobody wants anything evil or sinister to be the ultimate ruler of their life. But God is good. Everything he does is good. He cannot do anything but anything inconsistent with his character. His sovereignty over every single aspect of my life is one of the most greatest comforts that I think we can know. Remember what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 10? He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. He says, Even the life and passing of a sparrow, even that doesn't go without the knowledge and will of our God. Think about what Paul says in Acts 17. He says, He has appointed the number of our days and the boundaries in which we will live. It's the same passage Paul declares. This is the God who made everything and who is Lord of everything in heaven and on earth. He is Lord of all. And as a Christian, that is a comfort to us that despite all the things we see happening in the world around us, He's in control. The one whom we know and love is working out his good purposes. I don't know how in so many ways, but I know who he is. I know his character. He is the Lord. We are his servants. We don't presume to stand in judgment of other people. We don't want to presume his place to make judgments or to bring others down. We do not presume to have the ultimate authority about our life and all of the events within our life. But we just say, God, this life, every bit of it, it's yours. Everything I do, however long I live, that even if I was to die on this day, we can say, praise the Lord, I have lived every single minute that God has appointed me to live on this earth. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That we can give him thanks for every day that we've had, not saying it was cut short, but thank you that everything that you appointed has transpired. That we can comfort a friend who's in that need and say, everything that God had planned for your child has come to fulfilment. When things don't go to plan, we can praise him. We can praise him, God, even though I wanted this, even though I planned this, I thank you that somehow, that in ways I don't understand, you are giving me what I need more. As the prophet Isaiah says, of God, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But I can assure you, his thoughts and his ways are way better than ours and I will gladly entrust every aspect of my life to a good and loving God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us from times when we have presumed an authority that belongs to you alone. Thank you that you are 
working out your good and perfect purposes in this world, even at times when to, to our eyes and our understanding things look chaotic. We thank you that you've been gracious enough even to, to reveal how things all pan out in the end. Thank you for the certainty, for the assurance. Thank you for the comfort that we can have in your character, in your will, in your purposes. And may we proclaim something of your good character as we trust you in all things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.